0: Hey, I'm Simon Talbot.
1: And I'm Wendy Dean.
0: And this is Moral Matters.
1: Dr. Walter O'Donnell is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, where he's the clinical director of the intensive care unit, and he's on the faculty of Harvard Medical School in Boston. We've had conversations with him for years, and he's long written about the need for a reform in health care in many different publications, but most recently in the New England Journal of Medicine.
0: Let's have a listen. Walter, it is such a pleasure to have you here with us. As all of us here know, we've all been speaking together for a number of years about some of the challenges in being a physician and in the moral injury that Wendy and I speak about a lot. Could you kick off by giving us a little background about yourself?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm uh, a pulmonary critical care generalist. So I see patients uh, in the office five days a week when I'm not in the ICU. Um, And uh, when I'm in the ICU, I do that for um, two-week stretches. Um, During COVID, of course, a lot more than that. But uh, Mm -hmm. uh, thankfully, that's the usual uh, schema. Um, I've had some... uh, Kind of clinical leadership roles uh, but they've always been um i've always been a full-time clinician for 30 years um and have always tried to keep that perspective of both what it's like to uh, uh, keep my patients in mind while being in meetings that uh, we're talking about hospital budgets and and things like that so that's uh that's my background, I spent a lot of time with our residents um, and fellows in a, in a teaching institution. Um, I also draw on my experience from uh, I'm from a very large family, <laughs> and I'm a very from a very small town. So I get all sorts of patients coming in to see me um, from all kinds of backgrounds. So, so it's what makes, makes uh-huh. it all interesting.
0: And large families can often be a little bit like uh, hospitals. Yes. And the uh, way that we all work together, sometimes right. uh, sometimes
2: functionally and sometimes less functionally. Yeah. Absolutely. And
1: you learn how to have your voice heard.
2: Yes. That's right. When to speak up and when to wait and let the big people uh, <laughs> go first. Right.
0: Yeah. So, Walter, you wrote a very interesting article in the New England Journal about reducing administrative harm in medicine, clinicians and administrators together. I am very curious from your perspective what the takeaways are what the key things that you want to highlight uh, or you wanted to highlight when you wrote that were
2: yeah um i wanted to um in, i'd have to say it it started off because i was really ticked off which i think is probably the basis for most uh, most uh, <laughs> essays or articles um and i was distressed um because i had been taking care of this patient as the basis for the, uh, the illustrative story um, for a long time. And um, and from what I could see for that, uh, that admission, um, we should have had supports that we had previously uh, built into the hospital that had been eliminated without any discussion by clinicians or patients. Um, so the specifics were, uh, And I've been thinking about this for a while because it has seemed to me over the last three to five years, um, we had evolved from a culture where there'd be much more collaboration, discussion, people would, if they said, well, tough budget, we're gonna really have to trim these things down, which of these things should we think about? Or we were thinking about these three things, Um, we wanted to get your feedback. Um, It was never perfect, but it was, much more collaborative than the, than occurred in this setting. And it, it really had evolved to this scenario, which is that um, my patient was readmitted to the hospital. Um, and when I went to go over like why he could have been readmitted, was it a medical issue? Was he not taking his meds? Has he, it turned out he had started smoking again. So I thought, well, we have a smoking cessation program. We've had him for 20 years. It has phenomenal results um, it's well established in, in, in national standards to have those that kind of program and I wanted to know what happened they said well, budget cuts it was cut and uh, then I recall that we had had a our pulmonary division had had a meeting where we discussed the um, the cutting of this uh, program it had already happened um, and we sent a letter of protest saying our patients, patients really need this. This is this is the standard of medical care. And we were basically ignored. Um, and so I really saw this patient of mine as, as a victim of, of that, um, basically de-implementing a successful um, quality and safety program. And then how to put it into um, the right words, um, if we had, as you know, as a surgeon, Simon, you know, medical care has been scrutinized for a long time, for a hundred plus years. Even act, I go back as far as Hammurabi, right? If you, if the patient died, they cut off the surgeon's hand. Um, <laughs> but we really didn't seem to have that accountability or transparency for for administrative decisions. Couldn't find out who actually generated this decision. What were the deliberations? Um, and so I filed a safety report. That's what you're supposed to do, right? If it's a, if it's a clinical adverse...
0: <laughs> when there's a problem, <laughs> file a safety if, report. If a,
2: that's what I've learned, right? With clinical care, yeah. if it was a medical injury, you'd file a safety report, they would do a, um, a root cause analysis, and the cases would come up at our, at our um, medical M&Ms, um, just like your surgical M&Ms. And yep. so uh, it was ignored. I didn't hear back from anyone, I wasn't surprised, but I was just struck by the fact that there are really two standards of of, um, healthcare excellence and we're really supposed to be on the same team. Um, Mm -hmm. That physicians and clinicians, excuse me, physicians and and administrators um, are really part of the team, but um, the two worlds have become very separate. The two teams have become very separate. And more importantly, we can't learn from each other, right? We learn by this kind of feedback. We tried this, this didn't happen, um, or this did happen. How do we do better? Um, But for these administrative decisions, they make the decision, the budget goes in, they get the credit for the cut, and no consequences, um, like my patient returning to smoking. But they they don't get that feedback so that was my idea: was to kind of give a vernacular, if it were, take a try at um, um, having seen how um, uh, you and Wendy both put together this um, moral injury as a, as a, I think the a wonderful framing of a, a clinical circumstances. Um, it seemed to me that this is um, a set of circumstances that should be captured. It took a while took a little persistence through uh, working with the uh, terrific editor. And, um, and so that was really the basis of it.
1: Um. Yeah, so I love, the, I, I love the parallels that you make. And I think it really highlights the fact that we have underestimated how far administrative decisions have encroached on clinical care. And it really pointed out that fact that i can't do what my patient needs because administratively a decision was made without my input and my patient has suffered i also love the fact that you that you approached it from a unique perspective who like who would think to file a safety report (laughs) on an administrative decision
2: yeah I've done a couple of others, just because I think it's our system, right? We're we're supposed to do it, and uh, every once in a while it goes through. I did file one, um, uh, I actually had an infectious disease physician file one because his patient had been notified on Patient Gateway, like electronically, that his doctor was no longer his doctor. And the patient was so upset. As you might imagine, he been his doctor for twenty years, um, and the and I heard about it. I said, "This is clearly administrative harm." Um, file a safety report. They did, and they got an answer, and they apologized and corrected it. Wow! So, so it does. That's there, great. There is that power to do it. Um, you just have to have a system, and it can't get lost in the, you know, the code cart didn't have the right second vial of epinephrine in it both of which are important
1: it reminds me of some other folks that we've talked to who know the administrative systems really well they've read policies regulation legislation and know them inside and out and then use those levers to their utmost advantage using the system to tie itself almost yeah. and and to turn back and look at itself
2: right yeah, and I th- I think if um, in addition to the safety report thing, uh, uh, the proposal that I had made, and I, I stand by it, um, is that when you're prospectively making budget cuts, because we're this is budget season, um, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure the two of you have your budgets you have to get in, um, that that setting a threshold at which you're going to follow prospectively, you make a change, say we're going to eliminate this every once in a while we have programs that right that should be sunsetted or whatever the term is um but follow it forward and see what happens and check with patients physicians and the administrators to see what it was like when you got rid of the information kiosk in the uh, in the hospital lobby right or um things like that so i think that was a I I said it should be $100,000 or something like that, but the basic idea is at least one to two FTEs when you're going to cut those kind of things. um, You should track it. Um, So, And and that's eminently doable, right?
0: And it's a system that we are so familiar with. So those of us who are in clinical care are very familiar with safety and tracking our outcomes and making changes based on data and based on things like M&M conferences where you, you you try and learn and you try and perfect what we're doing or at the very least try and avoid bad things happening. Yep. You and I have talked about actually having administrative m ms Absolutely. Which is, uh, we haven't fully achieved uh, in, in right now, but tell me what you'd envisage as an administrative M&M.
2: Yeah, that, that's the, um, the crux of it, really. Um, I'd say get several cases, because right now we're going through budget process. Um, uh, and if you go by sort of your, your home, you ask people in their division or their department what things have been eliminated in the past six months or what things are going to be eliminated. Um, and then you can really, as long as everyone knows the, the, the issues are gonna be discussed, collect three or four, they're gonna be discussed um, and you have a presenter um, and you have the rules of the road, right, as, as you do at any of these discussions. Um, and then give a little bit of the back and forth. And the, the key, I think, is really that, um, and I had mentioned this in the article, that the default so much is just like shrug, uh, this is a budget thing, so the budget always decides. Well, that is nonsense. As you know from real life, Budgets are not about numbers. They're about priorities. Yeah. And and so um, that's why the budget number, budget answer can't be the final uh, final answer Mm -hmm. because there's always money somewhere else, but there's never enough money anywhere.
0: Yeah. And if you start looking at the cost of this patient starting smoking again, you start to see that the holistic budget is very different from the in-your-face budget about the smoking cessation program.
2: That's right.
1: And I love your term for that, fiscal fatalism. Yeah. <laughs> it's the weather, it's the budget.
2: That's right, and, and as I said, we used to say that in, in for medical outcomes, especially surgery, you said physiological fatalism, right? Well, tough case, <laughs> like tough yeah. budget. Right. Um, but it's, it, it, it's never fully true.
0: There's another thing that this brings up which I like, which is the idea that when we have a mortality and morbidity conference, a huge part of that is, hey, who else has a really good idea? How are you doing this that doesn't create this problem? What advice can you give me so that I can continue to be, and I'm not sure I love this term, but a lifelong learner, right? I'm somebody who um, is continuing to improve all the time. And uh, I I love the idea that this is about collaboration and communication and transparency and, and all the things that, funnily enough, we see in the leadership literature and in the business school literature, but we don't always apply. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think there's this sense that these decisions are being made. They're doing it. I, I would, I would presume that they're doing it with good intent, mm-hmm. not with ill intent. Right. But it may just be that there's there's not an awareness of what the long range effects will be.
2: Yes, and I think it's that um, uh, it's really as if we now live in you know parallel universes, right? That there's the it, there's a cliniverse where we live with patients and there's the adminiverse which is where the administrators live and they're not just parallel really in the current organization the adminiverse is on top of the cliniverse right and so we just need a little bit of rebalancing um because there are just things that don't roll out as numbers and and that you just say we don't we keep that program because we are a whatever, you know, certain principles, values, um, and, and those are uh, non-starters. Um, so, because otherwise, everything is really not on the table in any discussion of patient care. <laughs> A lot of things can be, but not everything.
1: And I think the more we move those decisions away from the rooms where the patients are, the less the patient is taken into account. And really, that's what we're about. And as clinicians, we're face-to-face with them all day, every day. Yep. So we see the impact very quickly, whereas it takes time to filter up or out to the non-clinician decision makers.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, because another thing that um, about this sort of, uh, not just safety reports, but looking for... Um, Prospectively for things is that patients don't like to complain, just like staff don't like to complain, right? So you're never you're not going to hear about it. I'm not going to tell some administrator when I see them at you know at our coffee central that uh, unless it's something egregious um, about some problem. I'm going to chat with them about a lot of different things and sort of so all these. True complaints that are really distressing to people—they just don't tell you about. It. And uh, this happens to me all the time. We uh, several of our practices changed our, their uh, phone system to a, this big centralized phone tree. Yeah, I, I can see you're both—you're both, you're both uh, grimacing. <laughs>
1: We—that <laughs> is the most common complaint we hear from folks. Interesting.
2: So we didn't have it, um, and the patients. Initially, complain. We said, "Yep, yeah, please let us know, and we'll we'll try to work on." It. We have no control over it because it's done from you know central headquarters. Um, and but the patients have practically given up, and they've come up with their workarounds, which is actually to get directly to our inboxes. Um, and but but they're really really upset, and if the business people who made the change don't get regular feedback they can't improve, right? That's a principle of medicine that we've always been about, especially in quality and safety, is that you need feedback um, to improve. And if you don't get the feedback, except budget looks great, and we have fewer secretaries that we have to pay for, um, then you, as in your administrative world, thinks things are great. So trying to integrate yeah. those two worlds, uh, because we, we, I've worked with great administrators throughout my career in medicine, they're terrific people, and they, they could be doing some different kind of business. Um,
1: so one of, the great, one of the great suggestions that one of our guests had, I think it was one of our guests, or someone that we've talked to, with along the way, was to have administrators work through their own scheduling without, notifying, without letting anybody know that they're an administrator. Yes. Just call and make an appointment, and then follow through on that appointment and see what happens along the way.
2: Absolutely, and to do it uh, in another language, right? Because I've got so many patients. Who do, <laughs> yeah. I, I, the patient who complained the most about that phone tree, and then our new system for—he um, called it my chart—for uh, for doing your own scheduling. That's what the system calls it. Um, he was ballistic. He's a businessman. Now he's business businessman. First language is English. And he was very upset. My patients who are Spanish, Portuguese-speaking, um, barely, you know, can use a a cell phone. They they just give up. Yeah,
1: I'm a physician, I, and I had to do it, and I nearly lost my mind yeah. yesterday.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I you know it, you made a very interesting point a, a second ago, which was about the feedback people give, and um, I was speaking to a clinician recently. said to me you know something it was uh, it was about a a clinical situation he said it's so bad and people have stopped listening to me so much that I've just stopped saying anything and I said to him you know that's kind of the worst situation because when you are silenced because you just feel like you're not making any progress the assumption is everything's okay and it is that necessary part of continuing the conversation and making sure that uh, the feedback happens Uh, That is the only way that anything will actually get uh, recognized or fixed or changed.
2: Absolutely. And that's why even that uh, um, in a follow-up article I included the, um, I don't know if you've seen the the sort of surveys are are really important and we don't survey clinicians at all, basically, right? We survey patients, we survey um, businesses, we survey insurance companies, um, uh, and we get these endless ratings of us. but but we don't survey our systems or our uh, kind of administrative teams. The, the one I particularly gotten fond of is the uh, Stanford uh, Personal Organizational Values Assessment Scale, and it's just three questions. Right? As is my my input is valued in administrative decisions. Two, my organization, my organization's goals and values <clears throat> fit well with mine, and three. Um, administration values my clinical work. Wow. Uh, the, the, the answers to that, um, I think, would be pretty resounding. So.
0: And those actually get to the heart of some of what moral yes. entry is about, exactly. right? Those get to the heart of, uh, my values aligned here? Yes. Am I doing what I think I should be doing? That that That's kind of the crux of those questions, uh, which I think there's another interesting part to it, which is that we so often speak to people in administrative roles who say, it's really important that I'm taking care of my staff so that they can take care of the patients, but that's only possible in a completely transparent environment where people are talking about this yes. and communicating and, you know, I know they're all buzzwords, but they really mean something.
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I think the, um, you know, getting beyond the, the complaint stage is very good, but kind of a positive working relationship, I think is really, uh, is really key. So, um, I do think this is how. Both in in your podcast, I was very impressed with the person you had on about um, uh, unions, physician unions, and that was in advance of the uh, JAMA perspective uh, piece by uh, Barack Richmond and Kevin Schulman on uh, physician unions as a counterweight to, as a professional counterweight to uh, hospital uh, dominance. I thought it was the, the, the perspective that that you discussed in your podcast was very similar to theirs. It wasn't a kind of AFL-CIO kind of union, um, but it was much more that physicians are are in this position of um, dual agency, and administrators just aren't. You know, we have a patient, and we have our organizational. Um, organizational role and the patient role always has to come first um so i I thought that union perspective and i wanted to see what you've thought of since then um about that uh aspect without the strikes or you know that kind of thing but the the idea that you would have um an organization you're you're in a 16 billion dollar organization of in my case, uh, as Simon's as eighty thousand people, um, and it's just little old me, <laughs> like waving my hand, um, I've got a question here, um, as opposed to um, a little bit more collective enterprise. Um, it does a, does something like a union or that flavor of thing um, have weight in, in terms of reducing moral injury and administrative harm?
1: So I, I feel like the the unions can be powerful, but they can't be powerful without individual engagement. So I think often physicians hope that if they join a union, the union will fight for them mm. and will and will will do it without a lot of investment in on their part. But really it's only as good as the members are. And as it's only as good as how much the members contribute. Mm-hmm. So I think whether we call it a union, whether we call it a guild, whether we call it collective action that's, you know, outside of a union, a formal organization, if we call it having each other's backs, if we call it having courage, whatever it is, it has to be with a collective purpose. And I think we also underestimate how constrained physicians are by their education debt by where they need to practice because of their specialty, by where they need to locate because of their family, by how unable they are to port their occupation. And so a lot of times their choices are forced choices. Mm -hmm. If they want to pay the mortgage, they can't speak up. And I think finding ways to empower physicians or to release them from some of those constraints, like the non-compete, Measure that's been proposed by the administration, that would have a powerful impact for physicians.
2: Yeah, I think that's an argument that I think um, you two have really made so well, which I hadn't really thought of until it's not that I hadn't thought about my student loans, which I still have, um, or or my mortgage, or, or you know the fact that I'm, I don't have a lot of options to move. But it just is so true because almost wherever you are. Um, your options can be limited and they're more limited um, uh, the the more you've sort of the deeper you get into real life um, and the bigger the loans are on things.
1: Just looking at one thing, when there's a vacancy in a clinician spot, in a physician spot, it can take years to fill. When you look at CEO positions in hospitals, rarely are they open more than six months. Very rarely. And so just that in itself says a lot, and I think we need to really rethink how we are having these conversations,
2: yeah, and how people um, have to cover, as uh, danielle of- Ofria said, and uh, you quote right that the, the only the only uh, unlimited uh, resource in, in medicine is the is the uh, the altruism of physicians and nurses and other healthcare workers it's true it's true.
1: So, Walter, if you could imagine the ideal situation, what would it look like for you?
2: I'll I'll strive toward ideal, but I'll walk there in a practical way. (laughs) I'd like to, first of all, have our administrators back really in the hospital. I think with COVID, we've seen people just vanish. And the only, the, the people who have to be here every day are, um, People who do things physically with and to patients, um, and it has created a huge divide. To find out that your administrator, you know, is here on, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays, you um, <clears throat> doing Zoom calls with them. Um, so I think that's the first thing I would say is, um, you know, what Abraham Virgese has talked about, presence. And he, he, he started out by meaning presence of mind, but now it's, it, it's also physical presence. And I think we need physical presence for the teamwork of physicians because I think some of these things also wouldn't have happened. Um, if, if that program had been presented at our faculty meeting, not on Zoom, with everyone around the table, <clears throat> and they had talked about it, the administrators would have gotten feedback verbal and nonverbal right like groaning people in the back you know saying nudging each other and saying they're doing it again or right it would, it's all these
1: groaning shifting right? you know side eye all, all, you you don't feel the body language all, if you're on you, zoom you don't
2: and so it 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 uh, it makes the administrative um, people who are not in the room comfortably numb um, and so I think that would be the first thing is to get people really back here the default is to be here in person um, because you just can't understand how life works we talked about the complaints thing where you have to give a little itty bitty complaint but the life is full of those but if you pass on the hall you say uh, you know that that printer is dying again I think I can get another year out of it but I'm gonna need one um, you know if you see someone uh, out in the hallway, could you grab it for me? <laughs> right, those little things. Um, so I think f- physically together is really important, and I think secondly, this idea of tracking um, uh, when administrative decisions are made, you know, and I define those as you know, administrative harm comes from top-down decisions that are unilateral and that are made without our healthcare standards of transparency and accountability. And if you bring those two things, those three elements back, and say <clears throat> decisions should be made prospectively as a team, there's gonna to have to be a final decision made, and that's not gonna be someone like me, um, but they should be holistic decisions and we should then keep track of how well we're, <clears throat> we're making decisions and how well people fare on the, um, I think on the things like the value scale. And so that that I think I might even say I want that I want the value scale and clinician ratings of their organization and its managers as much as I do um, having people back physically in our hospitals or clinics because we needed it yesterday um, because it would. It, it makes you better, most of it, we grimace when we get when we get those ratings, like, oh, I think most of them are gonna be good, but then I'm, I know I'm gonna get, uh, there's gonna be someone who maybe I didn't do the right thing, or maybe I upset them, or maybe they just had a bad day, um, but you gotta take it, um, and I think it does make you better. Um, so we should really have, that should be 360 degrees. Um, that's how we get better.
0: There's an interesting part to that that I think about when you mention it, which is that we so often rate hospitals by the ratings that the clinicians get. And we rank hospitals and, and all sorts of things like that. But a really good hospital has really good connection between the clinicians and the administration and really good connection between the leadership and the front line. And we often miss that link in rating hospitals and ranking hospitals and evaluating care in hospitals. It's not enough just to say we've got really good clinicians on the front line. It's really important to say we've got a team horizontally and vertically yep. who work together and we really miss that in a lot of our ratings.
2: Yeah the, the other thing I think getting getting back to that Wendy had said about um, attrition or people getting stuck but you also have people leaving and they leave silently and they just disappear. And you know, we should really have, that should be tracked. Because um, there's a, you know, you work in a teaching hospital, there's just an expected, right, X percent of people are gonna come and go, they're gonna go off to be the chief of um, everything somewhere, or their their spouse is gonna go to the west coast, so they're gonna follow them. There's just a, there's some base rate that you're gonna expect. But when you look across institutions, um and then you look at an institution over several years, you'll be able to tell who's keeping their people and who who is not just as simply as who stays or doesn't stay. and we know this, but it just isn't tracked and i I could be wrong, but I believe the um, one of the elements of um, of the nursing ratings um, for magnet status is retention and they track it um, you know, it yeah. has to be under X percent um, in terms of attrition to um, to maintain your, your magnet status. I think that should be tracked because um, it would be really useful. Yeah. and then across departments, um, say, wow, there's a lot of turnover in you know, smaller departments like your Simon. right You'd have to account for that. Yeah. but but you can see if regularly there's there's um, a lot of attrition over here, but not in these other three places.
0: Well, uh, th- there is there is actually a little bit of data on it. We know that, that staff turnover for a functional standard non-profit hospital is about 3% per year. Uh, but you and I know many hospitals that have much higher than that around the country. Yeah, um, yeah. And particularly right now when I think people are stressed by many, many different things. Right. But then to, to ask people when they leave, why are you leaving? Okay, maybe you've got yes. family on the other coast, but But that may not be the whole reason. And what can you tell us that would have kept you here or would be useful knowledge for the folks who are left behind? Those are really key parts of feedback that you only have one opportunity to hear those things, and it's only by listening that you actually hear them. So um,
1: we're missing that. And how about we don't wait until they leave?
0: How about we ask them
1: why they're staying and what they need to stay another year?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't know. Let's stop the hemorrhage. It's
2: it's it is very true. I think I've actually asked for exit interviews um, repeatedly to get the answer. Well, they're not very reflective, or they're not that useful. Every time I've done it, yeah, um, I've just had to buckle on my helmet. You know, find out someone you recruit from. It took a long time, and then they they're leaving. You just have to uh, you just have to face the music. Um, And they tell you fascinating things, which are really important, really important, but no one else would tell you.
1: Well, Walter, thank you so much for joining us today. There's a lot of ideas here. I know that you're going to keep working on this. And I think you mentioned to us ahead of time that you're doing a conference, and we'd love to have that link and make sure that we put it in the show notes.
2: Yes, thank you. We'll uh, we'll do it. It's administrative harm, professionalism, and uh, teamwork in medicine. So... Super. Coming soon. Excellent. All right. This has been terrific. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Walter. Thanks to you both.
0: Wendy, Walter is a good friend of mine and yours and always has so many interesting perspectives. I just love the idea of applying some of our clinical improvement processes to our administrative performance improvement.
1: I so love this idea. And I think he points out really well in this article that it would be different if clinicians were still guiding the decisions that impacted clinical care. But more and more, there's administrative creep into that decision-making. And clinicians aren't being consulted. The administrative side of healthcare is getting much larger. And our voices, frankly, are being drowned out.
0: But he does have some practical solutions. And that's what's nice about this, because it's very easy for clinicians to say, you know, this is what's wrong or to criticize it. But Walter has ideas about what should happen. And his upcoming conference to talk about some of the stuff is a perfect example of that really practical solutions to difficult problems.
1: Yeah. And I just love how it mirrors what's already in place. Mm -hmm. We don't have to reinvent a wheel we just hold the whole of healthcare to the same standard.
0: Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters.
1: Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios.
0: Now, as you know, we're a grassroots organization and your contributions will keep these episodes coming. If any of the work we do is helpful to you, please give back if you can by making a donation at our website, FixMoralInjury.org,
1: And while you're there, go to the podcast page for all the resources we mentioned in today's episode and browse through the pages and pages of other resources we've catalogued. The book list alone could keep you busy for months.
0: You can also help by spreading the word and encouraging conversations. Share this episode with friends and colleagues or use the social media links in the show notes and tag us. We'd love to hear and see your
1: thoughts. Plus, if you subscribe, rate and review the show... That makes it easier for new listeners to find us.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: And stay well.